You meet me in your Bibles in the book of First Timothy. In chapter 2, where we left off, I trust that since last week we are a little bit more grateful, hopefully a lot more grateful to understand the privilege that Christians have and the power of prayer, that God is willing to honor the cries of his people, even when it is concerning the loss that we know and love, to come to the knowledge of truth. Here's one takeaway from last week, that as we humbly amplify our request, God is willing to intensify his love, his conviction, and his manifest power to those we pray for. And we know this because God is willing to work with us in our desires to see people come to know Christ because it's in partnership with his own desire to see people come to the knowledge of truth. That is his desire. It's not just something we desire and we try to convince God to to do for us. This is in complete alignment with his longing to bring people into his fold. And the truth that God wants to bring people into, the very truth that what we pray for, Lord, reveal yourself, God wants to manifest a certain element of understanding to those that don't have enlightened hearts, that are deceived and darkened in their souls. What is that truth that we're crying out to God to do and to reveal, rather, to those who don't know it? It's found in chapter 2. And we see it in verse 5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So when you and I are praying and asking as a church, God, move in our city, move in our families, move in our workplaces, move in this person's life or that person's life, what is it that the Lord will honor to make more clearer to those that don't have the understanding that you and I possess? It's it's what we see here. And in these two verses, there are three truths packed in there that God wants to make known to those that don't understand. Here's the first truth, that there is one God. Here's the second truth, that there is one mediator between God and men. And here's the third truth, that there is one ransom and only one that can pay for the penalty that is due. Those are the truths that God longs to make known and is willing to work with our prayers to manifest, to manifest. But here's another understanding. These truths should not just be something that should introduce people to Christ. These are the foundational truths. But these truths, I argue this morning, are something that we should pray that would be more real in our lives, in terms of a deeper understanding, a deeper cherishing and a loving so that we would be more obedient and more conformed to the image of who he is. Let's explore these truths this morning. First truth, there is one God. There is only one God. Understand that this is a foundational element of who God is. He is one. 
The true and living God is not one God amongst many other deities, as some would claim. He's not one entity that governs one portion of the universe and shares some kind of responsibility with other deities that govern other aspects of our world. He is unique. He is transcendent. He is separated from all other created things. This God who is one has never before, nor will he ever in the future, share his status of Godhood. He will never, ever, ever give up that understanding of who he is. He is one. God has always existed. And there was no other God before him. Many have claimed to be God throughout history. And there are some who believe that we will become God's after this life if we're faithful enough. But there is no God before him, nor will there be any God after him. He stands alone. He always has. He always will. And nothing will ever change that, no matter who challenges him on it. No matter who claims what about their own understanding of God. This God is one and alone. We are told in the very first verse of our Bibles, in the beginning what? God. Not in the beginning gods, not in the beginning one of the gods, in the beginning God. Therefore the Christian faith, your faith this morning if you're a Christian, is known as a monotheistic faith. Meaning that we believe in one God. We don't believe in a plurality of gods. We don't believe in different types of gods, lesser gods and greater gods. We believe there is only one. And there are two other major world religions that hold to that same understanding of God, Muslims and Jews. They would say the same. And because of that similarity, some have made the grievous mistake of believing that because we all have at the, the center of our faith an understanding of God being one, and they make the claim by looking at the root of all our faiths, there is this common understanding, a, a failure really, an understanding to say that we have the same God. Yes, we all have one God, and he's the same God. He's the same God because we see how God relates to Abraham, and, and all these kind of things are attempted to be related to, and it's totally false because as much as God is one, this is where our faith differs from every other faith, including Muslims and Jews. This God who is one, he's eternal, he's uncreated, he's all-knowing, he's all-present, he's almighty, he's all-loving, but this Bible testifies that this one infinite being is also shared by three co-equal, co-divine persons. God is one being, but he is three persons. There's no way around it. It's difficult to describe, but it is undeniably clear in our Bibles that there are three persons that share within the Godhead. And each possesses a mind, each possesses a will, each possesses emotion, each can communicate, and each can be communicated to. This is something that we have termed the Trinity. And some might accuse us of thinking that we worship three different gods, but that is not the case. It is a mystery of God's nature. And though it is a mystery, it is not something that we can deny because it is clear. And this isn't some hidden concept. God being three in one. This isn't something that somebody put together cleverly and is trying to 
persuade people to believe a unique idea of God. It is unique, but it is shouted throughout the Bible. It is so clear from cover to cover that this is the kind of God that we worship. He is one, but he is three in persons. And this morning, I want you to understand that the same Paul who said God is one is the same Paul who was a master theologian who knew the Old Testament inside and out, said these things about the person of Jesus Christ. Are you ready this morning? We're going to dive deep into some theology today. Let's go to Romans chapter 9, verse 5. Let's go to Romans chapter 9, verse 5, and see what the Apostle Paul says concerning the person of Jesus Christ. He says here, to them, concerning the Jews, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. What is he saying? That through the Jewish race, the Messiah came. It is through this lineage. It is through this people group. Now look what Paul says. Is the Christ who is God overall Bless forever. Amen. Now, it cannot get any more clear that this is what Paul is saying. Jesus Christ, though he came in the flesh, is God over all. Now, did Paul slip here? Did Paul get a little too excited? Did Paul understand Jesus to be such a mighty man of God or a prophet that he, he accidentally attributed divine title to him? Or, or even worse, the Apostle Paul, the great theologian, did, did he blaspheme? Did, did, he, did he just say something flippantly? Did he say something carelessly? No. The Apostle Paul understood that although God is one, he's also manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity, and that he is just as much God as the Father is. And not only did he believe that God came in the flesh, as this verse describes, that he entered into the world and cloaked himself with a body. He believes this. In Titus 2, would you turn there? Concerning the return of Jesus Christ. Titus 2, verse 13, look what the Bible says. Waiting for our blessed hope, the peering of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul is not speaking about two different people here in this verse. He, he's not saying that we are waiting for God the Father to appear and his, his servant or his son, Jesus Christ. That's not what Paul is saying at all. Paul is attributing the title of great God and Savior to one person, and that is the person you and I have just been worshiping in the song, Jesus. Jesus. Another case to make is that whenever you and I read our New Testaments, we're aware that there is a great emphasis that as the church, as believers, we are waiting for the return of who? Jesus. When there's this language of return and revealing of, of God coming, it's always in, in light of the person of Jesus Christ. That's who we're awaiting. That's what we're, who we're waiting to break open the skies and to come down on the clouds. Jesus. 
And Paul here is not shy, just like in Romans, to say, this Jesus, as he's speaking about this with language of returning and reestablishing and recovering and redeeming, this Jesus, he's our great God. We're waiting for his glory. And we're waiting for him to return. That's wonderful. And you might be wondering, why are we talking about Because those are two verses that you can hold on to, to, to prove to your own heart and to others of the deity of Christ. The deity of Christ. Earlier this week, I had a conversation with an individual I've never met. And this person uh, was reaching out to me with, I guess, the goal to try to convince me that Jesus isn't God. That Jesus is not God. And so when we began to converse, he began to bring up many of the verses that declare God is one. And one of those verses is in 1 Timothy 2.5, that there is one God. And he began to make his case of why Jesus can never be God. And he gave all these different examples and these scriptures. And so the very same verses that were presented to you this morning were presented to him. Romans 9.5. What do you do with Romans 9.5? What do you do with Titus 2.13? And the individual quickly dismissed those verses as a mistranslation. I quickly dismissed those verses to say uh, that's not how it's understood in the original language. And, and this is something that people have adopted and have in, interpreted it wrongly. And, and so in my mind, I said, that's fine. Okay, you, you want to say that? Though you're wrong, let's just, okay, I have one more question for you. Just one more question. Does God bleed? And the person began to dance around the, the question, so I asked again, I said, just please answer my question. Does God bleed? And he answered, and he says, no. Blood only pertains to flesh and blood. God is spirit, and he cannot possess blood nor bleed. So then I asked him to go to what I'm going to ask you to turn to. That's in Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, look what the same apostle who said God is one said. Pay careful attention to yourselves. He's talking to the elders of the church in Ephesus. And to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of who? God, which he, who? He, God, obtained with his own blood. Does God bleed? No. My Bible tells me he bleeds. And then quickly that individual said, well, this is talking about Jesus Christ. I says, does the verse say Jesus Christ or does it say God? Does he say which he obtained through the blood of Jesus Christ? Or does it say which God obtained with his own blood? And the person began to argue, no, this is, this is about his messenger. This is about the prophet. This is about... Does God bleed? Then I began to say, you're right. It is talking about Jesus Christ. You're not wrong in saying that, but you have to make the connection. That if it's saying that God obtained his church with his own blood, and we know in our Bibles that the only one shed his blood was Jesus Christ, if that is a theme of the New Testament and the whole Bible, then you can only make one conclusion. Jesus is God. And... The follow-up to that was, I have to go, I'll talk to you soon, we'll keep in touch. 
I didn't want to rejoice in winning an argument. Neither should any of us rejoice in winning an argument. But I want you to know that you will at one point in your life, I'm sure, if you live out your faith and you're vocal about your faith, you will be challenged by people to prove if Jesus is God. And we must understand that although he is one, Jesus is God. And the same Apostle Paul who makes case after case of this to be true said of this concerning who? The third person of the Trinity known as the Holy Spirit. Uh, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, to many who do not believe in God being triune, they would attribute the Holy Spirit to be a way of describing God's power, God's active force, as Jehovah's Witnesses would say, God's impersonal force. It's the manifestation of what he does. And the argument usually is the Holy Spirit to God is what electricity is to you and I. We use electricity to do things, but we would never call electricity a person. And so there are people who believe that about the Holy Spirit. It's just a title that describes how God is able to maneuver and make things happen for his will. Now, that is interesting because the very qualities that describe a person, what are the qualities that describe a person, a human, a mind, a will, emotions, these things, these ingredients make up a personality. All those things are granted to the Holy Spirit. And so we know that we are called not to do what in Ephesians? For grieve the Holy Spirit. And we are told there in Acts chapter 5 that Ananias and Sapphira, what did they do to the Holy Spirit? They lied to the Holy Spirit. Have you ever heard anybody confess to you that earlier this week that they lied to their electricity and that they're seeking counsel to know how to receive forgiveness from their electricity. It's absolutely absurd. And so we see clear indications that the Holy Spirit is a person, that the Holy Spirit, in fact, possesses these qualities. And one of these qualities, him having a mind, is so clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, Paul is saying. Truths about God, the revelation about the cross. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything. Now the same word there for searches is the same word that Jesus used when he criticized the Pharisees for searching the Scriptures, thinking that in them they're going to have eternal life when they miss the purpose, which is to point to Jesus Christ. So the same word searches is attributed to the Holy Spirit, meaning what? Jesus was criticizing the Pharisees of investigating and examining and, and digging into the scriptures, which requires what? A mind. A mind does those things. A mind generates that ability, and the Holy Spirit is said here to be searching everything, even the depths of God. That's a wonderful understanding. So apparently electricity has a mind. Or he's a person. So to say that he's able to do that brings us that much closer to the reality of his personality. But it goes even deeper than that, doesn't it? Because to say that the Holy Spirit is able to have knowledge is one thing. But look what the Bible says. Now put your finger on 1 Corinthians 2. Now go to Romans 11.33. And, and realize this. 
The argument that Paul was making in that text is that humans are limited in their knowledge. That humans have a, a cap in understanding the truths regarding God. And in fact, humans cannot know things about God unless the Holy Spirit graciously makes it known to them. So there's a contrast being made here concerning human limitation and the Spirit's unlimited ability. Look what Paul says in Romans 11.33. He's, he's echoing a very similar statement. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of who? God. God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. So this is Paul in the context of speaking about God and his dealings with the nation of Israel and his redemptive purposes and how there's this hardening in their hearts so that there can be a work done amongst the Gentiles. And then once the Gentiles are finished in their work, he's going to relieve and bring about a grace to the hearts of the nation of Israel. So Paul, even the theologian, the mastermind is going, ah, I can't even go on with this. And he begins to explode in praise concerning the wisdom and the depths of God that apparently him and no other can know the fullness of. It's a statement about how you and I are limited in our understanding of how God works, who God is in his fullness, and how he implements his will on the earth. And unless the Spirit helps us, we're doomed. But he's willing to help us. But look what he says. No man can know the depths of God, according to this verse, right? Now let's go back to 1 Corinthians 2. What does he say in verse 11? For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one, that means no one, comprehends the thoughts of God except who? The spirit of God. So we already established that the spirit is able to search, which implies that he has a mind. And now we discover that though he has a mind, it's not like your mind or mine. He knows all things. And his knowledge stretches out even beyond the depths of our world. It reaches into the very depths of who God is, which no man could tread upon. So we now have this truth. Yes, the, the spirit has a mind, but the Spirit doesn't just have an ordinary mind. The Spirit has an all-knowing mind. You say, what's the point? That is a quality that only God himself can claim, that he is omniscient. He is all-knowing. And Paul is not afraid to attribute that to the person of the Holy Spirit. And so if you're going to give somebody a quality that belongs to God, that he is all-knowing, then you are making a statement that he is, in fact, God. And we can spend the next hour just looking at the person of the Holy Spirit and seeing how, in fact, he is not just an extension or a manifestation or force that comes from God. He is a person that works with the Father and works with the Son and in and through the Son, especially while he was on the earth. What do we conclude with this? You and I just heard that Jesus Christ is God. You and I just heard that the Spirit of God possesses the qualities that only God can claim. Do we have a book filled with contradictions? Are you telling me that over history, nobody saw this and thought maybe we should, we should clean this up and make sure that people don't get the idea that we worship three gods? Or did the apostle and the disciples 
And more importantly, there's God trying to tell us that there's something so unique about his nature that he is one, but in three persons. That is the conclusion. And that is the God you and I worship. And the implications of that, the practical truths of that are wonderful. They are astounding, but know this. There is no one like this God. And people love to try to attack this truth and this doctrine because it does not make sense to the mind, right? As though God needed to fully make sense to finite beings. As though God being transcendent and above all of, all of us somehow needs to completely make sense. It is not that it is contradictory. It is that he is unlike any other. And this can be a matter of debate, surely, this will be something that you and I must know when we defend our faith, absolutely. But more importantly, may it be something that causes us to worship and adore and stand amazed and marvel at. The complexities of who he is should not frustrate us. It should bring us to a greater adoration of who he is. People say, oh, why did God do it like that? He didn't make himself. That's who he is. He's always been this way. And he will never change, though men try to change him. The truth that God is one is what Paul establishes in 1 Timothy 2, 5. But then there's another truth. As much as there is one God manifested in three persons, there is also only one mediator between God and men. That's what he says, doesn't he? What is a mediator? A mediator is someone who attempts to make people who are in conflict to come into agreement with one another. A mediator is somebody who steps in with two opposing sides and has a goal of bringing a resolve or a settlement between the two parties. That's a mediator. And oftentimes the church steps into many situations to mediate between husband and wife, between friends, brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a mediating role there of trying to bring some kind of peace. And Paul tells us that the truth that God wants man to know is that there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now, for Paul to say that there is a mediator between God and men automatically implies that there is a conflict between God and men. There's an issue there. That between God in heaven and humans on earth, there's a fracture in relationship. And who holds what against who? It is God who has something against us. And the thing that God has against humanity is our sin. And our sin, our willful disobedience to his law, is like a spit in his face. And our sin is the very thing that caused him to turn his face away from us, as Isaiah declares. And as much as God displays common grace, does he not? The fact that the sun is shining through these windows and you experience some warmth today, he lets that shine on the wicked and the just. The fact that the wicked are going to be able to eat today, sometimes even better than some of us is an act of God's common grace. The fact that the world can marry and enjoy and have family and have experiences in life, that is God's common grace. That's how good he is. 
But know this, even with his common grace being expressed on, on a daily basis, there is a time where he will unleash his wrath. There is a time in which this fractured relationship is not a matter of just two friends disappointed with each other. It's not that you have a holy judge and you have a people that broke his law over and over again. You have a heap of mountains concerning sin and he will deal with it one day. But our Bible tells us that there's a mediator. That someone stepped in. Which tells us another thing about this God who is one, doesn't it? It describes the quality of his being. Not just who he is as a person, but the quality of his nature, and it is this. He is holy. He is holy. He's not like these other gods, these plurality of gods that are out there being worshipped day in and day out millions of them being described in some faith that act just like humans they they sleep with each other and they have revenge on each other and all these horrific stories of what these gods claim to be like this god is holy we cannot make the mistake and try to attribute god to be like us his thoughts and our thoughts are as separate as the heavens are from the earth his ways and our, our ways are completely separate as the east is from the west. He is completely different from who we are. And I believe the reason why we have been, become so casual with God is because we have painted him in our minds to be like us. And then we begin to use language like, well, God is not like that because I can't believe in a God like that. And we have lowered him down to be something that is maybe a little bit higher and a little bit more holy than the common man. Wrong. He is above and beyond in his purity and his morality. He is above and beyond in his characteristics, in his justice, in his holiness, in his brilliance, in his wisdom, and in his knowledge, and in his power. You cannot even compare anyone even to the foothold of his mountain. He's holy. There's a mediator because there's a broken relationship and unless there is a mediator, know this, we are completely doomed. And though we do not know what the conversation was like between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you can be assured of this. That at one time in eternity past, there was an agreement between the Godhead where there is a realization surely of the need of man, and that is salvation. And there was an obvious realization of God's requirement, and that is for his justice to be executed and for wickedness to be punished. And that if there's going to be any possibility of fellowship between man and God, it's going to require perfect righteousness, lest you and I are consumed by even standing in his presence for a moment. Take a prophet like Isaiah, who preached God's word faithfully, steps into the presence of God, and he trembles, realizing that he's a man of unclean lips. And I find that amazing, because if Isaiah had any boast in his life to claim righteousness, it was with his lips. He preached. He was faithful to the word of God. He declared and he renounced wickedness. But when he came into the presence of God, even the most righteous thing about him was tainted with sin. He saw the blackness all over it. And he crumbled. And there was no hope 
to even be in the presence of, a, of God. So there's a need on humanity's part, and there's a requirement on God's part. So here you have two parties. You have mankind hopeless because they are faced with God's requirement if this relationship is going to work, and no man can dare to even come close to what God is asking. To bear the punishment for sin and then to work out a righteousness that is seamless and perfect. You might as well turn your back on that task and dive into hell. But the Son of God, in agreement with the Father and the Spirit, realizing the need of one party that's laid on the table, and realizing the requirement that God has placed on that same table, voluntarily steps in and declares, I will mediate. I will mediate. What man could not perform, Christ himself will perform, and he did perform. That he would what? He would make the necessary provision so that the need of eternal redemption would be a possibility for those who would link themselves to him by faith. And the necessity of divine judgment and perfect righteousness would be implemented in his life and death. He would give his head to be the target of God's wrath. And he would give his life from babe to manhood to be the very representative for all humanity. And in doing so, the mediator satisfied the need of man and the requirement of God. And now is the connecting factor between us and him. This is not something that he reluctantly did. This is something that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit joyfully came into unity for. As much as God is angry with the wicked every day, Psalms tells us, God at the same time burst with love. And he had every right to judge us, but he didn't. The wisdom of God, that's what the gospel is known as, the wisdom of God was manifested when the Godhead implemented this plan. And you and I get to experience it. That's why it says, one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. He is our representative now. He is the representative of mankind. And he is the very thing that brings us to the Father, if you're willing to accept it. Which brings us to the third truth that Paul says in that verse. There's the truth of the oneness of God. There's the truth of the oneness of the mediating work of Christ, which means, by the way, there isn't multiple mediators to God. God isn't the best way. God isn't the most favorable way. God isn't one way amongst others. There's only one. There's only one. And to try to approach God by any type of person, including a saint, is absolute foolishness. But the scriptures are clear that there's only one. There's only one ransom. There's only one ransom. He says what in verse 6? Who gave himself as a ransom for all. Not some, for all. Meaning that all have the ability to come. All have the invitation to come. All have the access to this mediator and therefore having an access to God. All. Which means 
that since the provision has been made for all, all will be held accountable based on what they will do with this provision. I don't know how God Almighty will do it on judgment day, but surely it will be themed around this concept. God will not look at man and say, were you good or bad? God will ask this in some form or fashion, what did you do with the person of Jesus Christ? And that will determine the eternal fate of every soul. His ransom. There was a price paid for that mediating work to be effective. Something happened in the life and death of Jesus Christ that is beyond our understanding, but can be experienced nonetheless. He made a provision for all. Why would anybody reject such a gift? Why would anybody want to scorn at it, mock it, turn away from it, and embrace some kind of an idea that proves their self-righteousness? Why have we failed to understand the depth of this ransom? Have we failed to communicate the depth of this ransom? Have we as Christians so been accustomed to this gospel truth that it's almost become like Christianity 101. Let's move on to deeper things. When you and I will spend an eternity diving deeper and deeper and deeper and climbing higher and higher and higher around the truth of this gospel. You realize what Paul is saying? Maybe we can just tap into this a little bit to see how deep this sacrifice is. Do you realize what Paul is saying in that verse? He says, the man Christ Jesus. You know what that, that means, present tense, he's a man. It means that when Jesus left heaven, took on flesh, was raised as a human, died on the cross with his flesh, went into the grave as flesh. He did not resurrect, take off his earth suit, and go back up to heaven as a spirit. Jesus Christ did not have a spiritual resurrection. Jesus Christ had a bodily resurrection. That is, that is absolutely important to understand. Cults believe that Jesus resurrected spiritually. But that doesn't do us really good for somebody to claim that he resurrected spiritually. Nobody can, can see that, witness that. But we have proof because we have an empty grave. His body resurrected. But know this. The fact that his body resurrected means that he still has a body. This might shatter you a little bit, but it's truth nonetheless. Jesus Christ is still fully human, though glorified in heaven. Right now, as he sits at the right hand of God, you better believe that he has a glorified body, the same body that was conceived and that was woven in Mary's womb is the same body in glory now. The incarnation was not a temporary deal. It was a once and for all deal. Realize that when Jesus took on flesh, he did not dismiss his deity. He did not remove his divine attributes. He added to it. He added to his godness by becoming a man. And it would be a sealing work forever and ever and ever. What does that imply? That in consideration for your salvation and mine, Jesus Christ was willing to add to his nature humanity 
not for 33 years, but for all eternity. That Jesus Christ now is something that he never was in eternity past, but was willing to take on for you and me. So God, in the person of Christ, the depth of that sacrifice included, I'll add flesh. And I will become something so that they can become something. I will add on humanity to my person so that they can become sons and daughters of God. You know what else that tells me? That when you and I go to glory and you behold him, you will see those nail-pierced hands and feet. And you and I for all eternity will be reminded of the depth of his sacrifice as you realize the body that he took, that God had prepared for him and that he was willing to take on forever and ever and ever so that you and I would become something that we could never become unless he would do so. That body that he has even now is a token of his love that will be on display in heaven for angels and for the redeemed to marvel at without end. So when you see him, your heart will know. And when you worship him, your heart will know that the fact that he was willing to do that means that you are loved and that he is infinitely worthy of our praise. Understand this. These are the truths that Paul wants to be driven to the hearts of those who don't believe. There's one God, there's one mediator, there's one ransom. But as I said in the beginning of the message, I am wholeheartedly convinced that this is a prayer that you and I must pray, even as believers now, to say, God, help me understand in deeper ways the oneness of who you are. Help me understand in deeper ways the mediating work of Jesus Christ. Lord, unveil to me the treasures and the riches that are found in that ransom that you paid. We just scratched the surface in understanding the fact that he is still human. Oh, think of all the other things that we are in a lifelong pursuit going to pursue. I have that evidence in Colossians 2 as we close and before we break bread. Go to Colossians chapter 2 and see what Paul says as his struggle for the churches and realize that one of the things he desires them to have is what we're describing now. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 2 to 3. He's talking about believers. He's saying that their hearts may be encouraged. What a wonderful truth. The apostle, more importantly, the Holy Spirit wants your heart to be encouraged. That when you come here, when you're part of a family, you would not be teared down. You would be built up. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. That unity would be a reality and that love would be the, the binding force that keeps us together. But listen, not just together in love. Not just a unity around a sentimental kind of thing, a unity around a pursuit, a unity around a chasing after something, a unity around longing for something on a corporate level, which is what? To reach all the riches of full assurance, full assurance, listen, that you'd be fully assured that you're saved, not partly, fully assured of understanding 
and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. That was Paul's struggle. That was the wrestling he had within himself. He's like, you know, I pray that you would be encouraged, and I pray that you'd be knit together in love, but I pray that as a church and the churches would be collectively in agreement to say, we're going to chase after what? Knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. What is this series of 1 Timothy all about? It's understanding how and why God wants to build this church. And you better believe that what will mark a healthy and holy scripture-based church is that the people of God come to pursue this. To pursue this. That when you come after a long week of work, whether it's on a Friday or a Sunday, and you choose to plant here, that part of your participation in this church is we are together going to set our eyes on Jesus. We're going to open our Bibles on our laps. And we're going to sing songs about the glories of Christ. And we're going to study about the truths of his love. And we're going to grow in our understanding of him. For what reason? Verse 3, in whom are all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What language to describe a pursuit? I pity the man who is rich in this world but is poor in God. I don't covet that one moment. I don't care. Boast in what you have. Post in what you have. I could care less. There is one riches that we want to pursue. What does it say? The hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Implying not that they are They are concealed from you, but they are inviting you to discover. Discover something about the oneness of God. Discover something about the mystery of the person of Christ. To discover something about this ransom. And that's not just true for us as individuals. Paul says, that's my desire for the church. What do you think that will uh, produce? That's going to produce something of wonder. When you find treasure, you react a certain way. It does something to your daily life. It literally alters how you live your day to day. That is true in the physical, not, right? How much more in the spiritual? When there is greater things that you understand, there's jewels that you discover for the soul. You better believe that it will alter you. This is a big part of understanding how God wants to build his church. We pray this as a church. This is how we're concluding. You're saying, what does all this have to do with what we learned so far? That this was in link to the prayers of the people. That when we're saying, God, save people. God, bring them to the knowledge of truth. What we're asking is what we just discovered. But not just for the lost. We have every right to come together and say, oh, Lord, as we join hands and hearts, show us Jesus. I want to be rich in my understanding of him. I want to be a better worshiper. I want to be a better servant. I want to be a better communicator of who you are and what you've done. Don't let me waste my life pursuing other worthless treasures where they can rot and be stolen. I want you and you alone. That's a prayer God will answer for the lost and for the saved. It's yours and mine if we're willing to pursue it. Let's pray as we break bread.